Hey, I just want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. Um, I wrote this song when I was down and just feeling heartbroken down in Florida, down in the swamps and in the bayous. And I was really just, I was really just on one and I um, was on a th three or four day bender and I was reminiscing about my sweet pineapple uh, princess that had left me at the time. So, uh, you know, I get a little teary eyed every time I think about it, but I appreciate y'all, all y'all coming out here uh, on this open mic night to check me out out here at the bowling alley. Without further ado, I'll, uh, I'll get right into it. Every little thing there's some heat Oh, the high cost of pineapple flip And no pineapple, pineapple takes your hand Hand I feel you, pineapple sun Take control, just take control. I feel, I feel I got pineapple kiss. Oh, I feel I've got a pineapple kiss. Ear candy, pineapple rainbow, like a pineapple rainbow. Now, answer me. I love Florida Pineapple fruits in the Simpson Swamp Fair weather's nice, but I want more Sing and laugh to the ocean On a crowded beach in the pineapple storms Pineapple storms I feel I got a pineapple kiss I feel I got a pineapple kiss Ear candy a pineapple rainbow Like a pineapple rainbow I can take you to a pineapple Or an island anywhere I can take you to a pineapple or an island anywhere and I say I feel I got a pineapple kiss so I feel I got a pineapple kiss and I know it can be pineapple rainbow like a pineapple rainbow like a pineapple rainbow Like a pineapple rainbow Thank you very much. My name is Pineapple Jim. Check out my MySpace and uh, all my social medias till next time. Bless to you, Bowling Alley. Episode 2, episode 2. We're doing it. Welcome to the second episode of Analog Thoughts. I'm happy that you could be here to share the experience, and if you joined us for episode 1, thank you for um, 
dialing into those frequencies and and getting in here on the first episode. I really appreciate that. Um, on this episode, well, first, I'm your host, Stephen, a.k.a. Mount Analog, and on the podcast, the sort of format that I've decided to run with is I take questions from the internet. People on the internet submit questions of, like, really anything, um, ideas or thoughts or just questions they want me to answer on the podcast, and then I field those questions. So if you have something you want to hear me discuss on the podcast or talk about, or it could literally be any um, subject, too. We're trying to keep it, we're trying to just keep the door open with it, like art, music, movies, philosophy, it just anything, um, biology. So I'm trying to keep an open mind with, I'm trying to keep an open mind in terms of what type of questions I'll accept. You can hit me up on any of the socials, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all that stuff at Mount Analog, M-T period A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E. So if you've got a thought or you've got a question or you've got an idea, send them on over there. And this is episode two. Things are still evolving. Things are still mutating. Things are changing. I'm still working out how exactly I want things to roll. But for the foreseeable future, that's how we're going to do it. Is the you send the question, I answer the question. I've got some other types of things planned um, for the podcast as well for the future. But like I said, this is episode two. And I'm pretty, today's been pretty cool. Um... My sister works at an assisted living facility, and once a month, or once to twice a month, she'll, um, they'll like hire me to come and play music for the people that live there, and it's really cool because I get to like ask them what they want to hear songs about, and we'll like make songs together and stuff. It's really fun. I bring like my looper and keyboard and mandolin and guitar and stuff, and then um, we just create things together. So. That was my day. And then after that, I went swimming with my girlfriend and her mom and my two-month-old son. And he's trying to figure out what the water is, like what the water does. And he's stoked about it. So I'm stoked that he's stoked about it. And so, yeah, I'm a little tired because it's been a busy day. But it's not been like a... It's been all good things. I'm like not mentally trained. You know, I'm just kind of physically like... um soupy but not necessarily in a bad way it's a good soup it's a spicy soup um one more thing before we dive into the questions i do have a patreon so if you go to patreon.com and search for mount analog mt period a n a l o g u e you can uh there's like different tiers of subscription it goes from like one dollar all the way up to like I forget what I capped it at, like $30, but each tier you get like um, cool stuff every month in terms of like exclusive content or early access to content. And so, yeah, if you want to support, there's even like a dollar tier if you just want to throw a dollar. Um, yeah, I've done that before on Patreon too. It's a cool way, even even beyond me. You don't have to do any of that for me. Just listening is enough for me. But it is a cool way to support artists even like beyond myself and uh a lot of people use it to like fund fund movies or fund uh projects and stuff like that so if you aren't aware of patreon and you are looking to 
um, be a patron for creators, it's a good place to go. I just put one up, and I'm letting y'all know about it. So, with all that, let's jump into this first question. It was sent over by Joshua Hebert over on my Mount Analog Summit Facebook group. Sorry, I'm in a squeaky. I'm in a squeaky chair. Uh, so if you hear some squeaks, that's just me. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so Joshua Hebert sends over the question over on the Mount Analog Summit page. He says, what is your take on secret societies? And I think that this is a pretty large question with a lot of sources of information. And due to the nature of secret societies themselves, it can be uh, kind of hard to distinguish fact from fiction sometimes and just just because of like the nature of secret societies themselves so i tried to do my due diligence with this and find you know as accurate information as i could find but short answer to that question is um i think they're out there i know that they're out there <laughs> and it can be kind of a gray area when you talk about secret societies just based on like what the parameters of a secret society are but like the dictionary the actual definition of a secret society is an organization whose members are sworn to secrecy about their activities so still doesn't necessarily like <laughs> doesn't necessarily like quantify exactly what a secret society entails or like what all their activities consist of. So even by definition, it's kind of a gray area. And I kind of wrote down, uh, when you dive a little deeper, there are agencies that operate in secrecy, but will still allow their presence to be known. And then if we operate on that pretense, there are a ton of secret societies like the military, uh, corporations and businesses, religions, cults. Uh, you only get access to what's going on if you join. They kind of like, they operate in the public sphere, but they have these sort of like secret going-ons behind the hood. And for this episode, I'm going to kind of stick to that premise or that um, paradigm with it, is that um, I'm going to talk... I'm going to talk about the Knights Templar because they're probably like the biggest secret society that has ever existed. And there's a lot of like public information about them, but there are also like, you know, books written about their goings on, like the goings on behind the scenes. So there, there's just a lot, there was a lot of information about them and I thought that it was a cool starting point um, to jump in. If you're looking to jump into secret societies, which I've done a little bit of research on them before, uh, but I haven't taken quite the dive I took on this one. <laughs> and I feel like, I just want to say, I feel like society kind of like functions upon secrecy in a pretty heavy way. Like online security, homeland security, all of the governments um, that operate in the world are kind of like secret societies. They're all like, and and for for good and bad um, as well, you know, it's like sometimes you don't want people to know what's going on because it's sensitive information. So I do get that, and I know that um, 
that is kind of where we get into the gray area of like, is it a secret society or is it an entity that remains secret because the information that they have could be uh, used in a nefarious way? So there's that too. I'm personally not a big fan of withholding information if it pertains to, you know, the progress of humanity. So I feel like if you are a secret society that operates on the pretenses that you have, you're, you're trying to make gains by withholding information for, from people, I, I don't really jive with that. That's not really my, it's not really my cup of tea. I don't think it's most people's cup of tea. Um, I think there's a ton of secret societies making really big moves uh, today that sort of operate behind the government, behind corporations. And by secret societies, I don't even necessarily mean, you know, like cloak, cloaked figures that meet on a meet on a full moon and like sacrifice a goat or any any shit like that. I mean, like, <laughs> there are secret societies that, um, that just have, like, they have gains to be made economically, so they keep things behind, they keep things super secret, which, I mean, makes sense, because business in general is a really, like, cutthroat thing, and if you're gonna, like, share all of the ways, all the methods that you made all your money, people are going to steal that information and just like use it to also make money and undermine your profits, I guess. So yeah, corporations, secret societies, are they the same? Kind of yeah, but kind of not. Once again, that sort of gray area. Um, in Italy and Poland, it's actually illegal to have a political party that it's it's elite. They have banned secret political parties and political organizations in their constitution. So they said, you know, obviously we don't want it. We want none to do with it. And I thought that was really interesting when I was doing my dive on secret societies. And also my dive of doing secret societies, I got into all of like the collegiate ones, just like uh, the ones that exist as fraternities and stuff like that. Obviously, some of the big ones are Skull and Bones, The Pit Club, The Scroll and Key. Um, Skull and Bones and Scroll and Key are both at Yale. The Pit Club's at Cambridge. The Flat Hat Club, which is in Virginia at the College of William and Mary. So I thought, um, if you want to take a deep dive on collegiate secret societies there's like a bajillion of them and i almost went down that rabbit hole but i was like no i'm not gonna do that um the biggest one of those is probably skull and bones there's been like a bunch of movies i don't want to say a bunch maybe like three two or three movies <laughs> made about them and of course like george bush's affiliation with them and everything like that makes them a pretty high profile secret society and I would be remiss if I were not to mention all of the conspiracy theories that are associated with secret societies. And I don't think that necessarily, like, conspiracy theories are all crackpot theories or, like, you know, I think, I think conspiracy theories, just like that term in general, gets a really bad rap. But I think conspiracy theories are just that. They're theories about... People can spot, like, there's theories about conspiracies, so a lot of times con conspiracy theories wind up being true.
And I think when we look at things like collegiate secret, secret societies, and when we look at things like corporations, and we look at things like um, our military, a lot of the conspiracy theories people have about what are what is going on behind the scenes is, are more often than not true. So, you know, question, question things. Um, there are some really obvious conspiracy theories that have been at one time uh, considered, you know, considered crackpot, but have been outed now, like UFOs. Like, just in recent years, the government has come out and said, like, UFOs definitely exist, and they've shared and declassified tons and tons of information. And um, that's that's a conspiracy theory that has now just become fact. That's not even a conspiracy theory anymore. And there's a ton of stuff like that, like Agent Orange... Um, governments are spying on you it's like we used to think like oh man i think it's weird we're getting we're getting these ads on our phones and like i think it's they're super catered to me and now it's just like public knowledge that corporations and the government are spying on us via our smartphones that's just true those are just truth you know like that's, that's just truth and then there's also conspiracy theories that lie like somewhere in the middle ground like, all of the 9-11 stuff obviously happened. To what extent the public was, um, to what extent we know exactly what happened is still s super out. On, the jury's still super out on that. <laughs> JFK's assassination obviously happened. To what end, it ha or to what were the devices creating that situation? You know, people will debate that forever. The moon, the lunar landing, obviously we've been to the moon now. Was the first one real? Uh, you know, who's to say? And then there are the extreme conspiracy theories, which are like th uh, flat earth. And I took, I actually, when flat earth hap happened, like when people were like, the earth is flat, we, we, we like went back to that. I gave it a, sh I gave it a shot. I never bought it but we used to think the earth was flat like a long time ago we were like earth's flat so yeah and then we discovered it wasn't flat and people were getting like killed for saying that it was flat or that it wasn't flat sorry and then it was just like believed for a really long time you know it's a sphere and now people are like no actually it's flat again so it's like if we got it wrong once we could have got it wrong again and so but after looking at the number and the numbers up, looking at the data, it doesn't quite add up. Flat Earth, nah. Um, QAnon, I'm not even going to dive into that one on this one. It will get flagged. This podcast will get flagged. <laughs> um, I'll just say medicines, mind control. Uh, I'll leave that at that. Simulation theory, which is an interesting theory. I don't even know if that falls into the category of like. I mean, I guess it does. Like, simulation theory, if we were living inside of a simulation, wouldn't that be, like, the most grandiose conspiracy theory ever? As, like, all of this is fake? All of this is... <laughs> I don't know. I it's, it's interesting to think about. Like, what would be the... Um, reason for it why would be why would why would we be inside of a simulation other than the pure uh 
I guess, like enjoyment or the pure uh, fun for someone to like observe the simulation. I don't know. It's interesting. Maybe we are. Maybe Hey, you know what? Maybe we are inside a simulation, probably. But uh, anyway, I kind of got sidetracked there. <laughs> so where am I going with this? There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of secrets. There's a lot of secret societies and their role in humanity and global politics. The truth of all of the conspiracies and secret society kind of like land somewhere in the middle between the cracks and you know i think that there are so many secret societies to dive into the illuminati the freemasons the new world order but i decided like i had said earlier before i completely derailed myself i decided to dive into the knights templar they 100% did exist they operated in a public setting but maintained secret activities and influence behind the scenes. So they were probably the most powerful secret society that has ever existed, that we can confirm existed, I guess. <laughs> I'll say that. And a lot of modern conspiracy theories still include their influence in secret societies' creations, like the Freemasons and Illuminati and all that, still attribute like their roots to the Knights Templar, or like that there are people, ancestors of the Knights Templar, involved with their inception. So, where did they come from? They came about during the Crusades, which... The Crusades, uh, the Crusades happened between 1095 and 1291, and it was when Europe was trying to take over Jerusalem. So the Knights Templar operated as an arm of the Pope throughout Europe and many parts of the world, and eventually they uh, took Jerusalem in 1099. So we're talking about the Crusades. The Crusades, even more than just taking Jerusalem and taking Holy Lands, was kind of like, if it had crescendoed and gone on longer than it did, it was really kind of like a global domination sort of thing, where it was like, imperialism here, we're going to go there, the Catholic Church is taking this over, the Pope is going here, and the Knights Templar sort of acted as a military... Um, a military force for the Pope and, and, and sort of spearheaded the, the front lines of the Crusades. So once uh, Jerusalem had been taken, uh, people from Europe would take trips to Jeru Jerusalem because Jerusalem, Jerusalem uh, was this, still is this like super, considered the super holy land. So people wanted to take pilgrimages there and it was incredibly dangerous because the entire routes like leading up to Jerusalem were still under Muslim control. And the Knights Templar were responsible for protecting people who were going from Europe to Jerusalem. It was their job to make sure they didn't get killed or robbed and all that. Um... They were created. They were act. They were actually, even though they were an arm of the Catholic Church, they were created by a French nobleman, uh, 
who was affiliated with the Catholic Church, he put up all the funds to like train all these all these dudes and like give them really cool gear and like horses and shit and give them all their stuff to to actually go out there and do the thing. Uh Yeah, but they would eventually become much more than just bodyguards for uh, Europeans on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I don't know why I can't say Jerusalem. Part of their rise to power was due to their code, which was referred to as the rule. And their code was a, a lot similar to, like, nuns and monks and other monastic sort of entities where they they, like, wore really simple things. Like, their attire was just, like, all white with a big red cross on their on their chest. That's all they were allowed to wear. And, like, anything beyond that was considered arrogant. They didn't have sex. They weren't allowed to date. They weren't allowed... So, yeah, like I said, it was a lot like being a monk or a nun. Obviously because they were an arm of the church. The, their whole system had a had a hierarchy. There was um like a master at the top. So like it was kind of set up like a military where there's like the warlords at the top and then everything below them. So you have like I don't even I'm not even going to pretend like I understand military ranking systems, but you have like you know the master chief, the dude at the top, and then you have like your commanders and then your your uh just peons or whatever at the bottom and it was like a top-down sort of like pyramid type system that they operated under um church services were mandatory also in their code they were not permitted to retreat from battle to retreat from battle sorry excuse me so this this small thing just being um incorporated into their code made it to where they uh were a force to be reckoned with So during the Crusades, they became famous for their prowess in battle and their unrelenting tactics in fighting. And they had intense discipline and training every day. So think about, like, think about, you know, you're waking up, you're going into church service. After that, you're you're sword fighting and you're riding on the back of a horse with a bow and arrow and you're uh, training. That was pretty much what they did all day, every day. And... At first, they they definitely were just like a uh, a means to an end. You know, like the Catholic Church said, we need these people to kind of be our uh, our our force, our actual like military force, and that's what they were. That's what they that's what they started to become. They started as bodyguards. They started as like helping people on this pilgrimage, and then they became more and more ruthless and more and more. Uh, not ruthless, they became more and more trained and more and more tactical and started to be renowned across Europe. So royalty throughout Europe wanted the Templars removed completely because obviously they were like, yo, these people are a threat. These people are a threat to our power because Europe at the time and throughout all of history has had a really uh, tumultuous, has been a really tumultuous power struggle for land and for resources. So because of their relationship with the Catholic Church, the Templars sort of operated above the law in most parts of Europe. They didn't have to follow laws. They didn't have to um, do, they didn't have to worry about any sort of like border control. They, they worked as this sort of like 
European police, and their whole privilege was sort of delicately intertwined with the Pope. The real, like, the real upper, the real true master uh, warlord behind the Knights Templar at the time was the Pope. So they were just kind of running amok through throughout Europe doing whatever they wanted. Obviously, they got more and more powerful, and they, um, you know, with with their power came this privilege where they were entitled to any of the spoils of war while fighting amongst the, fighting the Muslim armies. The Templars used their war spoils to further fund their forces and strengthen their armies, and they didn't take, they didn't pay taxes. So, they're moving throughout Europe, they are kind of operating above the law. They're accumulating all of this mass from their war spoils. Whether the wars were actually sanctioned by the Pope or not didn't really started to not really matter to, to a lot of them. They were like, "We're going. We're they kind of. I don't want to say they became Vikings, but they got a little Viking esque, where they're just like, they got stuff. Let's take it, you know. So, um, behind the scenes, anyway. This this is where the conspiracy aspect of it comes. They got so big, they got so powerful that people, you know, started to be like, what are they doing? How did they get all this influence? How are they um, so powerful and so wealthy? And a lot of it came because of the privilege that the Pope um, allowed them to have. So they also developed a banking system, which I thought was really interesting. And from what I could find, it was like one of the most... Um, or one of the earliest forms of a banking system. So that what they would do, because they would get like, even though they were really powerful and strong, people would catch wind of like, okay, there's going to be these 10 Templars that are <clears throat> transporting like all this gold or something. And they'd, they'd, uh, bandits would like plan to steal all this gold. Sorry, I had to cut the mic for a sec. I don't know why. But I live in the city, and <laughs> I'm not really close to train tracks at all. And I've not ever really heard trains here at all. I don't, I don't even live on like the outskirts of the city. I live like in the city, and the closest train is like very far away from me. So I was in the middle of talking about this banking, and uh, all of a sudden it was like, I don't know. Maybe they put a train track in, like in my alley, and I just I missed it. I just completely missed it. I was like, damn, there's trains out there. But anyway, I have furthered, I have further derailed myself. <laughs> uh, so we were talking about the Knights Templar. They developed this system of banking where they would, they opened up banks all over Europe and they would deposit money into these, into a bank. And then the bank would give them a ledger that says, you have this amount of money and they would travel to another bank and then withdraw the money. And everything was on the books. And, uh, yeah, it was one of the, like, earliest systems of, like, banking in that way. Or, like, credit loans and credits like that. So they, I don't want to say they invented that, but kind of the modern version of it. And then they started offering the service of banking to very high-end clients of depositing money in a Templar bank and then receiving a letter or credit at another Templar bank. And the banks grew and slowly began to entrust uh, people. The banks grew and these high-end clients and like other people started to entrust the Templars with their wealth. All from 
all different countries throughout Europe. So the Pope also used the Templars as tax collectors, and they were known for their efficiency. So, like, gets a little mobby, gets a little mob-esque, you know? Uh, the ironic thing is that with their code of rule, the knights were supposed to embrace poverty. That was part of their code of rule as being, like, monastic, being simple, and being not connected to worldly possessions. So while their code directly told them, you know, don't worry about money, they were accumulating all this money throughout Europe. And I just thought that, I just think that that's really crazy, you know, super, super hypocritical. So at the same time, uh, people were donating money to them because since their influence had grown with the Catholic Church, people had started giving them money to save their soul. So instead of like going to church, they'd just give like the Templars money and they'd be like, okay, my services or my money's going towards the Catholic church and like my, my soul's debt has been, you know, has been given. And now I can, now if I die tomorrow, which was a thing, which was, I mean, it's a thing now, but back then it was very much more of a concern for people that like, hey, might just walk out my house tomorrow and, you know, either contract a sickness that will kill me within a week or I'll get, like, you know, someone will cut my head off with a sword. These were very, like, real uh, problems. So people would donate, um, donate money to them to save their soul. And sometimes the donations weren't even in forms of money. They were in forms of land. So the Knights Templar would, so people would be like, I really want you, I really want my soul to be safe. I'm going to donate, you know, 10 acres of land to the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar would use the land to like farm or create vineyards. And this increased their wealth even more. So they're like balling out at this point. They have all the weapons, all of the authority, all of the money. And it's just crazy. They started off as these bodyguards going back and forth from Europe to Jer Jerusalem, different parts of Europe to Jerusalem, and now they're like kind of running Europe. <laughs> so because of this, uh, because of this, at their peak, they would also wind up owning land uh, all across Europe and parts of northern Af Africa. So eventually they bought an entire island, Cyprus Island, from the King of England. The people who lived on the island really, like, did not like them because it was, like, the epitome of imperial imperialism where they're like, yo, you're coming in to live on our island, we don't know you, but the Templars were like, we're the government now, so, like, listen to us, and they were like, nah. So they staged a, they were going to stage this overthrow. All the people on the island banded together, and they were going to try and massacre the Templars, but the Templars got wind of this and instead started massacring the people on the island. So it was like, do what we say or die, basically. And it got so like heated and so crazy on the island that they eventually gave the island back to the King of England, even though they still maintained a lot of like the assets that the island produced, which is just wild. They, they were about to, you know, the Catholic Church and this arm of the Catholic Church was working on total like global domination, which happened throughout history over and over with different entities and different like 
uh, in different forms. Like countries try to spread and take over, and countries still try and spread and take over. It's wild. So their power and connections to the king and political figures grew, and they would eventually start helping to fund other military operations for kings and countries throughout Europe. So not only do they work with the Pope and the Catholic Church to increase the influence of the church and the reach of the church, they start to work with other kings around Europe to like sort of entangle the Knights Templar into their affairs and get their their own reach even further. So at this point they've just kind of become their own bosses. Like the Pope the Pope sort of started them, but the Pope's like, you know, it's kind of out of the Pope's hands at this point. He's like, damn, y'all are y'all are taking over. So by the end of the 12th century, uh, Muslim armies started to take the Holy Lands back over, and support for the Crusades started to dwindle. And so people are like, yeah, okay, maybe we should let the Muslims have Jerusalem back. You know, we've been fighting all these wars and stuff, and so maybe we could do away with the Knights Templar. Like, we don't really need them anymore, right? And uh, people started to question the intentions of the Templars and started to fear the influence that they were gaining across Europe. And King Philip IV decided to take the Templars down. And in 1307, he went around France arresting Templars and torturing them until they, quote, confessed their sins, which, you know, is just an easy way of saying, like, we caught them and they said that they did these terrible things, so now we can punish them. Which, they probably did do terrible things. Um, or they absolutely did do terrible things. Probably not all of them, but like a huge chunk of them. They were, they were, they were balling out at this point. They were just kind of doing whatever the fuck they wanted. Um, in 1312, the Pope was finally convinced to dissolve the Templars. And a few uh, dozen more Templars were executed for their confessions of their sins. So now these... These Templars are being publicly executed. The calls out by the Pope, the calls out by uh, King Philip IV to not only dissolve the Templars, but to say, if you still wear the white garb and the red cross, and you say you're a Templar and you work and you and you work with their influence, then you will be hunted and executed because they got too big. They got so big. And they did have so much influence behind the scenes that wasn't a fit, it wasn't really like in the name of the Catholic Church. They they grew out of that and they started to have their own secret intentions behind the scenes that uh, scared other countries and scared other kings, and they shut them down. So although their history is laid out pretty well, there's still, you know they still constitute as a secret society. They operated publicly, they were known, um, but they continually sought privacy. And they had countless operations outside of their public affairs. So that's kind of why I picked them. There was, you know, a lot of information regarding them. There was a lot of information um, about what they did, but there was a lot of information about what they didn't do. And... There is a lot. There are a lot of books on the Templars, and I kind of, I, I might take an even deeper dive after this, after like learning a lot about them and kind of like 
doing a small deep dive, I kind of want to know a little more. <laughs> um, they had secret initial, they had secret initiation rituals and were scrutinized for their secrecy. Many theories arose about satanic doings and anti-Christian practices, which whether or not those are true are, you know, no one will probably know. They could have been totally just rumors that, uh, they could have totally been rumors that other people in positions of power that feared them wanted to start to like, you know, dwindle their influence across Europe. And what better way than to say that they were working for the Pope, but were acting under satanic pretenses. So by the early 14th century, they were mostly dissolved. Their involvement in history since has been debated and pondered. So, like I said earlier, some believe that they, they quote, dissolved and went on to create all of these other secret societies that still linger today and still have their roots in the Knights Templar today. Um, some people think they had, like, enchanted items. So some people think that on their crusades they were able to get, like, the Holy Grail and the Shroud of Torin and, and like, all these other th things, like the Ark, Ark of the Covenant and stuff like that, and that they, that is, like, there are theories that, like, that's how they derive their powers because they went on these holy crusades, obtained these, like, enchanted items, and it gave them this, like, power. When in reality, they probably had none of that stuff. Maybe they did, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just spitballing. They probably trained really freaking hard to, uh, be... Uh, balling out, you know. I read, I read this thing about them being like super, super skilled on horseback with bow and arrows. So like their cavalry was really um, top shelf. And I know that that's how, uh, like Genghis Khan and all of his people were able to get so much of Eurasia was they had horseback riders that were really good with bow and arrows. And they were trying to take over the world, too. It's like, you know, history repeating itself. But anyway, uh, that's my that was my deep dive on the Knights Templar. Secret societies are crazy. I picked the Knights Templar because they're, they're like, you know, they're like the Walmart of secret societies. They're, they're the biggest. They're like, there's the most information about them. And I think there are way more... There's way more of a deeper dive I could go on this, but I could speak hours for sec on secret societies, on the more like modern, nefarious ones that are uh, most likely controlling certain aspects of world politics behind the scenes um, and stuff like that. But that might be a whole different subject that I've, I think I might do in the future down the line is a, a podcast where, uh, not a separate podcast, but an episode where we kind of dive into that a little bit more. I just thought it would be fun to do a little history lesson on one of the biggest secret societies out there. Yeah, so um, once again, thank you. Let me make sure I'm getting your name right. Uh, Joshua Hebert. Thank you for the question. Really, really appreciate that. That was a great question, and it offered a lot of uh, conversation. A lot of, it offered me a lot of rambling and conversation with myself and to y'all. <laughs> Question two comes from Molasses Jangles over on Instagram. And 
It reads, one question I ponder often is how to deal with the the natural ebbs and flows in the creative process, how to keep from self-critiquing for not creating while when in the ebbs, and how to maintain healthy life balance when hit with the heavy creative flows. That's a really good question. Um, So, I, I think all creators, myself included, get down on themselves about not feeling good enough, or they think that they are on the wrong path, or that they don't stack up to other artists that they admire or other artists in their lives. And I had this really um, sort of like, I had this really like epiphany moment in my life, or not, it wasn't even an epiphany, I guess that's the wrong word. I had this like aha moment in my life in the third grade with my uh, teacher, Mrs. Riley. So if you're, Mrs. Riley, if you're out there and you're listening, thank you for this. I don't, e- I don't even know if for some reason you're out there, hit my line <laughs> because I want to send you a care package. So thank you for the, thank you for this. But anyway, when I was a little kid, uh, I was always comparing myself to other kids and I was always thinking like I wasn't good enough and that I was like, my self-esteem was like absolute zero. I had no self-esteem. I like kind of hated myself and I had this teacher like, Mrs. Riley, take me aside. And she would like hear me because I was a weird kid and I'm a weird adult. And I would like say stuff out loud, like, man, never be like these other kids. This is such and such is so much smarter than me. Or like, they're so much more athletic. Like, why? And I would get up down on myself. And she like pulled me aside and really like talked to me. She like looked me directly in my eyes like I was an adult. And she was like, you are special and you are unique. And you cannot compare yourself to other people because you are you. And that no one will be like you. No one will be as special and real as you. And you're doing yourself a huge disservice by comparing yourself to them. Just, just figure out what about you that you love and love yourself. And that has stuck with me my whole life. It was like a really real moment for me and it was cool because like I I don't remember all of the circumstances it was like the other kids had gone out to recess and for some reason I was like doing indoor recess I don't know why but I was like trying to get this this like report done or get this thing done and I was like she could like hear me getting like down on myself like talking about like oh man I'll never get this done you know or like I'll never do this the way other people are doing it why am I so stupid so she took the time to really like let me know that you're not you're you're not stupid and you're not you know you're good enough you need to like look at what makes you special and unique and Focus on those aspects of yourself and those aspects of your life and learn to love those pieces of yourself. So I think that that's a really, not to get too off topic from the question, but I think that remembering that sort of, I think remembering that can be really helpful when you get hit with the with the ebbs of the creative process because you can sort of like lose track of why you started doing the thing in the first place and you can get lost in comparing yourself 
to other people. And that's like not to say uh, you shouldn't critique yourself or you shouldn't grow, because I think critiquing yourself is really important to get to self-critique and have others critique you in a constructive way, because that's part of growth. And that's, you know, part of being a human is, is not being, uh, you know, is being able to say, uh, there is room to grow here. It's a big piece of it. And don't get trapped. Another thing is don't get trapped in the idea that you need to be perfect or that a project you're working on needs to be perfect. Sometimes you just need to set things free and let the world enjoy them. You can't always like refine something to this standard that you think it needs to be because art, sharing art isn't about like sharing your magnum opus and it's more about sharing this growth and sharing this this piece and this fragment of the human experience that you're in right now. Also on the flip side of that, don't be afraid to, um, I guess not on the flip side, but another piece of that is don't be afraid to abandon a project. So sometimes you can get really wrapped up into something and be like, this is so great and this is so um, this or that. And then you revisit it Maybe like a week later, you put it down, whether it's a painting or a piece of music or poetry or whatever it is, landscaping project, whatever your craft is, you can come back to it and be like, what was I thinking? But you'll still have this like urge to sort of finish it. And I think abandoning projects can be really powerful because it allows you to take what you needed from that creation and apply it to new creations. And sometimes just like, capturing an emotion or capturing a thought is so much more potent than trying to uh, completely flesh out uh, this thing that you think is really potent. Sometimes it's like the small little things that you don't think are going to hit people in the way that they do. They do wind up hitting people in the way that they do because you were able to let yourself go and let your let up like let a pro, let a, let another project be realize that wasn't capturing an emotion but take a skill from that project into a new project that does does that make sense i don't know uh it's crazy when you start talking about art and start talking about the creative process but just learn to grow learn to be learn to show up every day and learn to uh, let things go as well. So the second half of the question is, how do you maintain a healthy life balance when you're hit with the flows? So I think that balance is key in all situations. And you really want to work on not burning yourself out. So I try not to think about putting in like, 10 hour days all the time or like putting in so much time that I'm just going to like, like, I'm just going to wake up, crush this. And it's going to be awesome because most of the time when you do, sometimes when you get into like some really technical stuff and you're like working on like, on really like final details of things, sometimes that can be a vibe. But a lot of the times you're going to burn yourself out doing that, especially in the like creative portion, the creation portion of a project. So like I said, just focus on being there every day 
show up and work every day, whether it's for two hours, whether it's for 30 minutes, whether it's for six hours, but don't like try and rush the creative process because you're going to learn slowly and you're going to develop techniques over time. And then through using those techniques to encapsulate a part of your experience, something really beautiful is going to emerge from that. And I think that can be hard to do it can be hard to it can be hard to stay in that headspace when you're really like wanting to share a thing. So don't be afraid to take your time. I personally only share like a really small percentage of things. So like all of the music specifically that I've ever shared is only like 30 to it's like maybe like 40% and the rest is just like, I have folders and folders of just like, on my computer of like, exercises and beats that will never, I don't say ever, but like, I don't have any intention of ever sharing. They're just like, growth projects. So give yourself gro- like, growth projects. If you're working on drawing, and you're like, man, I really suck at drawing uh, hands, just like, get a notebook and start drawing hands. Be like, this, this is my handbook. And every day, just draw like a hand in a different pose. Try to just grow and be free with it. And if you do feel completely burned out, uh, take a break and get inspired and sort of like realign your perspective because you can't like keep pulling from a pool of inspiration if you're if you're uninspired. You have to like have inspiration periods and sort of alternatively to that, if you are so uninspired that you can't do the thing, just start doing the thing without any intentions, without any uh, regard for finishing a project. And then oftentimes when you start getting in there, you'll like want to keep going. So if you've like hit the burnout phase, you're taking a break and you're like, man, I really need to get back into that. If you just get back into it without having like expectations, you'll really find that like you you'll find like a new sense of peace with the thing. Whatever your I keep saying the thing, but like whatever your artistic endeavor is. So it's all really yeah, it all comes back to like balance. And most situations all situations come back to balance. <laughs> what I like to do with goals and figuring out a way to balance life is I like to turn my goals into lists and then I like to turn those lists into like smaller lists and then like knock out things one at a time. So from get like figure out what getting from A to B looks like and then figure out all of the nodes in between A to B. Like what are those sort of like macro steps and then figure out the micro steps between the nodes to to get to your destination. And then along that journey too, you'll find that there you'll find other passions and other skills and other um paths that you didn't even know you were interested in taking too. So yeah. If and also it feels really good to cross things off of a list like a physical, tangible list, like if you write it down and cross it off, it feels good. (laughs) And also, um, I just wanted to say about like, 
social media and stuff is super anxiety inducing and it can be it can give you a panic attack because you see everything everyone is creating and you see everyone else like quote succeeding you know it can make you feel like inadequate or weird about your creations but you shouldn't feel that way because people online are sharing the best version of themselves and the best versions of their creations. They're not sharing like sometimes, some very rarely you'll see people get down to the nitty gritty and like share a video where it's like, this is what it took to get this done. And it's like, wow, those are the, those are really inspiring videos to me. Um, but oftentimes you just see like this finished, polished, really cool thing. And it can make you think like, oh shit, I'm fucking up. I'm not working fast enough. I'm not working hard enough. And in reality, you probably are. It's just when you get inundated with an endless scroll of these pristine finished products, it can make the whole creative process feel intimidating. So don't be on social media so much. <laughs> That's a big piece of it too. I mean, social media is great. It's got it's it's another thing that has balance. It's how you find other artists and it's how you find other things, but it also has a darkness to it as well. I always joke and say like staring into the rectangle of sadness, but it's not really that. <laughs> it's not really a rectangle of sadness. Uh it can be. So people another one last little thing uh on this is people aren't going to forget about you. They know that creating things takes, things takes time and people who are truly willing to be there with you on your journey are willing to wait for you to create your next thing. Like this podcast has taken, I think between this one and the last one, it's been weeks because I have other endeavors and I just have life and people are going to, people are going to follow the people who want to be there for your journey are going to be there with you. So take the time that you need. The most important thing is that you keep creating and keep moving forward. Thanks, Molasses Jangles. I really appreciate the time and the energy you put into that question. It was very well thought out, and I thank you. I did this on the first episode, and I thought it would be really cool to sort of continue the tradition of doing a fun fact at the end of an episode. And this fun fact, I thought, tied in really nicely with the second question of the podcast about the creative process and creating. Um, it has to do with the Olympics, and that between the years of 1912 and 1948, the Olympics actually handed out medals for things like painting and sculpting and architecture and literature. So there was this guy uh, in 1912 named Walter Winan, who had already won two Olympic medals for sharpshooting, who won the first gold medal for the arts in the Olympics. And he won it in Stockholm for a 20-inch tall horse pulling a small chariot. And the chariot was made, the sculpture was made out of bronze, of all things. He won the gold medal for a bronze sculpture. He named it American Trotter. So... Back when they were still doing arts in the Olympics, all of the pieces had to be um, all the pieces that were submitted had to be, had to depict some sort of sport. So in one way or another, it had to be sports related. Um, 
you can actually see most of these pieces of art online. And I was like, pretty blown away by how good they were. Not that I expected. I don't know. These are like people operating at like peak, uh, peak physical prowess. And I don't know why I just like, in my mind, like before I looked at them, I was like, they'll probably be all right. Like, you know, but they look like they're astounding. I was like, whoa. Um, this guy, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but this guy, Baron Pierre de Colbreté, uh, founder of the International Olympics Committee, saw art competition as an integral part of the Olympic competitions. He felt that in order to have the games in modern times, it would be unfair not to include aspects of the arts. And actually, um... They used to be, even before modern times, back in Greece, they were uh, they were paralleled with the athletic competitions. So it was like they were just as important. Artistic competitions in ancient Greece were just as important as physical competitions. They paralleled each other. But this guy, uh, Baron Pierre de Corbetin, uh, no, Corbetin, Corbetet? French, uh, had a really rough time getting this point across to the modern Olympic organizers. A lot of people weren't super thrilled on, you know, people came from far and wide to watch people wrestle and watch people play like sports. And they were like, I don't know if we can really sell tickets to this thing. If people are going to come and watch people like recite poetry or like show off a sculpture, um, World War II happened. Uh, and in 19, in 1940 and 1944, the Olympics were put on hold because of the war. And when the Olympics did resume, uh, they had a new head of the International Olympic Committee. So our French friend, Baron Pierre, was no longer in charge of coordinating the Olympic events. And this new dude, this American named Avery Brundage, he didn't like the idea of the arts being involved with the Olympics because he wanted to keep the Olympics, quote, completely pure and not to be swayed by the weight of money. So his quote was, artists inherently rely on selling their work for their livelihood. And because winning an Olympic medal could theoretically serve as a sort of advertisement for the quality of an artist's work, he didn't want uh, artists, art in general, to be in the competitions with physical competitions. So he put an end to it. But he was a hypocrite because in 1932, he, he submitted a piece of literature in the Olympic Games himself. So <laughs> at one point he was like, yeah, okay, I guess he probably was like, I want to be involved with the Olympics, but I have to also, uh, you know, I'm expected to also submit this piece of art, or I don't know. But either way, he's a hypocrite and kind of a douchebag. So after much debate, after this Avery Bun uh, Brundage gentleman got, uh, got in charge, the arts were taken out of the Olympics after World War II. But like I said, you can see most of these pieces of art online. If you just uh, go into a search engine and, and look for it. You'll find them, and they're really cool. There were some 
cool ones that were like of sharpshooters. There were all kinds of like poems and all kinds of uh, paintings of swimmers, paintings of uh, runners. I don't know if I didn't hear any like pieces of music. No one had like an audio, like an old audio file of that or anything, but maybe that's out there. If you stumble upon that, please send it my way because I would love to hear it. <laughs> Either way, I think we should bring them back. I'm going to start a movement, bring back the Olympic artistic games because, or the Olympic artistic competitions because Baron Pierre had a vision and I want to see it actualized once again. Uh, and that's pretty much it. That's pretty much the podcast. I want to thank all of you for listening to episode two. The podcast is still, like I said, evolving. It's still changing. I'm still finding my, where I'm going to land, but I like this format. Like I said, if you have a question or musing or a thought that you want to hear discussed on the podcast, send it to any of my social medias at Mount Analog, MT period, A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E. I would love to hear any critiques, any advice, anything whatsoever. So send it my way. And like I said, I do. I am on Patreon. You don't have to go there. Listening is enough. Sharing the podcast, telling your friends about the podcast. I think you can like rate it on like Apple or, Google or Apple Podcasts or something like that. So I think that helps other people discover it. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, give it a give it a rating, a rating or something. Uh, say some nice, say something nice. Make me feel good. Let me be feel nice. No. <laughs> but I appreciate all of your time, and I hope that I helped to brighten your day, or I hope I hope that I helped you shorten your car ride, or helped you in some way. Um, thank you so much for listening. And remember to check on your mental health and check on the mental health of your loved ones. Until next time, infinite love. Thoughts,